The Benefits of Play, a Kinship Carers Victoria podcast. This podcast is part of a series on kinship carer self-care and well-being. It was recorded and produced on Jarrah Country, the land of the Jaja Wurrung people, and we extend our ongoing respect to all Kulin Nation peoples, the traditional custodians of these lands, and pay respect to the elders, both past and present, and to the deep knowledge of the land that is embedded within the Indigenous communities. What does the latest research tell us about the benefits of play for the well-being of children and young people? The February 2023 edition of the Royal Children's Hospital National Child Health Poll, Australian Families, How We Play, has produced some findings of great interest to kinship carers. In this podcast, we seek out expert opinion and commentary from Dr Anthea Rhodes, the founding director of the poll, on these findings. Dr. Anthea is a paediatrician, researcher and child health advocate. She has clinical interests in the health needs of the vulnerable child with expertise in child development and behaviour. Through her work on this poll, Anthea seeks to put the voice of Australian children and families at the heart of the conversation about common and current child health issues. We first asked Dr. Anthea about how beneficial play is for children's development and emotional, psychological and physical well-being. There are huge benefits from play and as you've mentioned for young people but actually this also extends right through into adulthood so for us as parents and caregivers play or sometimes we think of it more as recreation, things that we do for fun because we want to has lots and lots of benefits so particularly in terms of social and emotional well-being and mental health. The types of benefits for young children from play come from their opportunity to develop social skills through experimenting with things, pushing boundaries, testing things out, trying things. Play really is like a big experiment and it gives them that opportunity to learn. It's also an opportunity for escape. So particularly where children might have had difficult experiences or they might be struggling to understand something, they might use play, particularly imaginary play, as a way to escape from things and to actually find some respite, some peace and some solace. And that's really important for us as adults as well. And then of course the physical um, you know, benefits, which some people think of obviously if you're active, so moving around, there's lots of physical benefits. So play that involves being perhaps outdoors in the environment where you actually have exposure to nature also has not only physical benefits, but mental health and wellbeing benefits too. And less often thought about, the fine motor skills that come with play. So for younger children, that, that might be while they're sitting down, they're using their hands to do things. So it could be drawing, craft related things, actually placing things into small spaces. All of those things actually develop a lot of fine motor skills and the connections between the hands and the brain. So, so many benefits, including motor skills, and then right through, of course, to social and emotional wellbeing too. We also asked if play is as important for teenagers and adults as it is for younger children. Play is incredibly important for teenagers for a whole variety of reasons. So it's done for fun or enjoyment, 
there's lots of people who talk about the fact that sometimes some bits of play might not be fun. They might be challenging and interesting, but not always totally fun. But regardless, it's done for recreation. So it's not something that you have to do or is a task or is a chore or is put on you by someone else. So for adults, teenagers and young children, having a chance to spend some time doing something that if you like is of their choice is a really important way to relieve stress and anxiety lots of problems that we commonly see you know in today's society and for lots of the listeners here i'm sure and the young people you're caring for it may be a big part of the challenges so play is a really important escape avenue for young people to actually de-stress and you know do something that brings them joy often we don't realize what play looks like for teenagers because it's it's a word we associate more with kids so if we think more of sort of recreation and sometimes i talk about a playground if you think about a playground with play equipment it's really obvious to think of young kids and how they're playing there so in they come and you know they're on the equipment perhaps really little kids might not even use the equipment they might dig in the sand pit or pick up the tan bark and as they get a bit older they're using the equipment primary school they're clambering maybe on top of it rather than through it but it's kind of obvious what they're doing if we think about teenagers what do they do in a playground well they sort of hang around they might hang on the swing they might sit on the picnic table sometimes they get a bad rap for that people think they're sort of you know being a bit delinquent or causing an issue they're actually playing so what they're doing in that space is they're exploring a new environment, they're exploring one another, they're talking, they're testing things out. That's an example of teenagers playing, you know, in their recreational space. And you can take it even further and think about the parents or caregivers who might be at that playground watching those kids, having a laugh, having a chat, perhaps sharing a coffee they're playing as well so in all different ways that experience of engagement interaction testing things out they're all types of play and they're really important across the lifespan digital devices and online platforms are now part of every child or young person's life and much current debate centers around their use and how much is healthy or otherwise Dr. Anthea talks about what part digital devices and online material can have in play activities and how this can help to allow children to express their creativity and curiosity. She also outlines the difference between online entertainment and social interaction versus play. Is there social engagement? Is there an opportunity to be creative? Is there a way to actually be with others? Those sorts of activities online do constitute a type of play and recreation and can have some benefits. So it's not all bad when it comes to the online space. There is lots of use of online materials that is not really play. It is more processing or just entertainment. And that would particularly be information binging. So for example, I've got teenagers myself, um, you know, and adults might, you might sort of think about things that you find yourself doing on your phone or your device as well, where you're just watching things. So that might be lots of things on YouTube or whatever other channel you're looking at, TikTok, for example, where all that's happening is um, viewing and there's not actually a lot of engagement. There's not creativity on the user's part. There's not a back and forth. That's not play. It might be entertaining, but it doesn't offer the benefits of play. There are ways kids can have play type interactions online, but information binging is not one of those. The other big area that people talk about is, well, what about gaming? So we know evidence and research tells us that particularly for teenage boys, 
you know, gaming is a really popular way to spend their time. So not all gaming is the same and some gaming will offer some of those things. It might be interactive, might be creative, um, it might be social. Of course, none of these things are healthy if they're done in excess, dawn to dusk, you know, without any opportunity to do other things. But in smaller doses, depending on the content of the gaming and the type of app or whatever it is that the young person is using, may offer some of those benefits that we see in play that happens, if you like, in real life. Devices definitely can have a role for play. There's no benefits in research for young children. So when I say young, I mean under 18 months of age. There's really no clear evidence that there's a benefit for interaction with a device for those very young children beyond FaceTime conversations with real life people, where which is different from play, but that's really the only rule, only space that we know where there might be some benefit for young kids with digital devices. As they get older than that, um, there are some roles where good quality content through technology can be an important part of play. So the key things to think about are, you know, is it engaging? Is it interactive? Is it providing an opportunity for creativity? These are ways that the device itself becomes like a tool in that play. So lots of early learning environments now, for example, might incorporate things like iPads or tablets. And they might have activities where kids are taking photos of things and then they're using them to build a storyboard or, you know, to write or talk about afterwards. They're ways that technology are absolutely a part of play. Similarly, sometimes there are apps or games that might allow for creativity, culturally appropriate and, you know, safe socially. Again, it's just another channel for a type of play. Where the sort of slide gets slippery is once we get into things, as I mentioned before, that are really just about viewing and sort of um, binging on information that's not a type of play. Social media spaces, particularly for young children, so certainly children under 13 years of age on social media, there's lots of evidence that suggests that's not a positive or safe place for play for young children. They benefit much more from social interactions in real life where they've got an opportunity to read facial cues and body language and understand the back and forth of what's being shared which is quite different to what happens in social media so technology itself is not necessarily the bad guy it's how we use it and that looks a bit different at different ages and it becomes increasingly hard to control if you like or manage as children get older and it's worth being mindful of you know what are they actually doing how good a quality is this? How useful is it for them? You know, does it feel like it's actually a negative thing where they're not interacting very well with others or perhaps it's affecting their mood negatively? Then you're probably right and taking a break from that sort of thing would be a really good idea. So how important is it for children to play by themselves and with their peers? So playing by yourself as a child or as an adult is a really important skill because it means people are able to be content in their own company to actually have some space away from others and social interactions and that's been shown to help with mental health and well-being we know that increasingly with devices and many children are getting their own personal devices whether that's a phone or an ipad increasingly from a very young age that children actually don't spend a lot of time just completely by themselves trying to occupy themselves without a device and what that means as they get older is that they lose that ability to actually sit 
just with themselves and work out what they're going to do or look out the window or, you know, observe what's around them because they're not comfortable with it because it's not something that they've experienced very much. And adults are finding this too in that, you know, you sit down, you've got to wait three minutes for a tram, you've got to look at your phone. So for young children growing up, they've always been occupied by other things. So encouraging them to have time on their own without technology and devices to occupy them is really important for their mental health and well-being because it gives them that skill as they become older to be content in their own space and allows them to have time to be, you know, thinking, resting, de-stressing, all of those things are important for staying well. Often people feel like they need an adult involved in play, particularly for young children. And in fact, in our study, we found about a third of parents and caregivers felt for young kids, an adult always needs to be involved, set the rules, make sure everyone stays on track, you know, supervising things. In fact, I'd really like to challenge that concept for people listening today. Obviously, we want to keep kids safe and that's a whole nother element to talk about, which I think we'll get to shortly. But at the same time, the whole point of play is giving them a chance to experiment and learn boundaries and they do that best with each other with peers so that might be children the same age slightly older slightly younger and leaving them to work it out between them as long as it's safe and if you've got children who perhaps are you know more neurodiverse or have additional challenges that might require some extra scaffolding or supervision but as much as you can allowing kids to actually work it out between them gives them a much better chance of building new skills and also is slowly preparing them for the real world which is really what play's all about so very very important to play leave kids really largely to their own devices with one another and also to have time occupying themselves do children always need toys or equipment to play dr anthea explains so we asked australian parents and caregivers this and you know around a quarter of people thought play's always better with toys in fact, that's definitely not the case. So play is an imaginative process and it can definitely be enhanced with items. They don't have to be toys necessarily. They can be regular household items. They can be, it could be a stick from the garden. Whatever a child chooses to use and bring into that game that they're building can be perfectly good. It doesn't need to be something that's already made purchased you know and got a purpose in fact there's lots of benefits to the child coming up with the purpose of that item and actually creating it themselves so toys can be fun and they have a space in the play world but by no means is play better always with toys and it definitely definitely doesn't have to have toys as part of the focus and i would really encourage people to think creatively about how they can get their kids using things that are just around the house because we know that often that results in the best sort of play. Some children will just pick something up and away they go. Others might need a few suggestions or some help to understand, oh, well, how could we get this going? They can get that from each other or they might get that from, a, from an adult. And then once they're in the habit of it, it's often something that they can start to do really well on their own. The Royal Children's Hospital poll showed that a third of parents surveyed said it was not good for play to involve risk. 
Dr Anthea explains that play inherently involves some risk and it is through managing risk that children learn and develop. She also outlines what sort of input and how much say parents or carers should have regarding rules for games, safety and boundaries. What's really important here is understanding what would be the purpose of risk and also what actually is risk. So what I like to talk about is the idea of risking on purpose. So that's building in some risk to a play experience that allows kids to test something out. But at the same time, recognising that the chances of harm from that level of risk are small. They're not zero. They're never going to be zero. That is the whole concept of risk. But they're small enough that it's reasonable that you might let that happen. So the obvious examples are more physical examples. So it might be things like allowing a child to, you know, climb a bit further up a ladder into the play equipment than they would typically do or than perhaps they did last time. There's risk involved in that, but at the same time there's learning because they're understanding their boundaries. Can they go that bit further? And if they're not given the opportunity, then they won't be able to work it out. So at some point it's going to be too far and it will be unsafe and so by testing that out a child will start to learn where that boundary is rather than have no idea and find themselves in a situation where they in fact might put themselves at more risk so it's actually very important for them to experience a little bit of risk where we talk about risking on purpose and learn from that oh okay that doesn't feel very safe or actually you know I could have fallen off there it, it, it I was at my limit and so the next time they're in an environment where perhaps there isn't someone there to guide them they're more likely to have the skills to understand where that boundary lies so this is reflective of real life we have risk all the time as people get older those risks become less physical and they become more cognitive and social is it okay for me to say this to this person? You know, what will happen if I don't go over there? So those sorts of levels of risk happen in play all the time as well, where children are testing out what's okay or not okay to say, and then they're learning through those interactions where the boundary lies. So totally understand that we want to keep our kids safe. And, you know, as a doctor and thinking of my colleagues in the emergency department, dealing with the accidents and injuries that happen, we want to keep those things to a minimum and particularly where there's really high chance that some activity will result in harm. We absolutely don't want to allow for that. And there's really clear examples like, you know, swimming without supervision, play around traffic or other sorts of hazards, really clear things that are not okay, particularly for young children around supervision. But where we can have safe levels of risk on purpose and allow kids to test things out, then we know that they'll actually learn from that. One of the key ideas behind play is that it's led by the child or the individual. So in terms of choosing how the play looks, you know, even where it happens or how it happens, as much of that that can sit with the child as possible is best. Obviously, we recognise that it's not always an appropriate choice of timing or perhaps the place where kids want to play may not seem like it's suitable. So parents will need to be involved to a certain extent to set some boundaries and sometimes some guidelines. But beyond that, play is best when it's left to kids to actually drive the agenda and work it out for themselves. 
Almost two in three parents surveyed said that they often find playing with their children hard or even boring, and more than half said they were keen to learn more about how to play with their child. Dr Anthea talks this through and has some tips for carers. A lot of parents told us in our study that sometimes they don't like playing with their, their kids or the people, young people they're looking after. They might find it hard or boring, particularly dads and male carers were more likely to tell us that, you know, they don't necessarily love it. So not everyone is like Bandit from Bluey where they'll, you know, get dressed up or get on the ground or, you know, get involved in an imaginative game. It's really common and very normal for parents to feel like, oh, I just can't be bothered or I don't know how to do this or I feel really uncomfortable. Does it matter? Well, yes and no. Things that are good about play for parents and caregivers with their kids. We know that the positive things that come out of that are bonding experiences and attachment really develop and flourish within play. And that's for a variety of reasons. It's partly because if play is happening in a really good way, the hierarchy is gone. So who's in charge? has actually gone away and what we talk about often in in sort of the business of paediatrics and play is that you have play partners and those play partners are equal so your three-year-old and the caregiver when you're playing together your partners and you're equal and so that enables a really different type of relationship and interaction it might mean that that three-year-olds in charge they might say oh no we're going to the shops now and you have to pay three dollars for this and they start to set the rules so that's really empowering for them it gives them a really positive opportunity that they don't get in the normal life interaction where you're actually at the supermarket and you know the caregiver parent is in charge and they're saying who what you get to put in the trolley and what you don't get to put in the trolley and whether you have to get in the queue and whether you have to get in the car now so the whole point of play is to flip it on its you know over and allow that young person to be in charge and give them a little bit of empowerment and it allows attachment to really flourish so I would encourage parents even if it feels odd or you know you think it's a bit uncomfortable or maybe it is a little bit boring to try and get involved in some play particularly imaginative play if you can or where you allow the person you're caring for that young person to set the rules and guidelines and you go along with it because they're learning a huge amount about the world and you'll find that that really strengthens your relationship and attachment the other thing that's really interesting about play for parents and caregivers is that it can often be repetitive you know sometimes parents feel plays boring the main reason for that is because play deliberately for kids is often very repetitive and that's because they're experimenting and actually often they're changing just one little thing each time they do it so a really great example might be again if we think about an imaginative game of shops with um, you know a, a preschooler and they might say every time, well, you have to be Jan and I'm going to be Sue and this is the baby and, you know, lots of things have to be the same and you have to say yes now and you have to sit here. But they'll often then change one small bit each time they revisit that game. And by doing that, they're testing something out. It's like they're testing a little theory in this imaginative world they've set up and understanding oh is that going to work maybe I can do that this time so for the grown-up it feels really repetitive but for the young person it's not they're actually doing something slightly different and it's a deliberate part of the way they're learning they're also testing you to see if you're going to react the same way every time so through that 
role play that feels really tedious if you're the adult, that young person is learning a huge amount. So if you can find a way to navigate into that and enjoy it, then you can have a lot of fun with kids and they come up with some of the most amazing ideas and things. I've got a toddler at home and recently, I don't know why, but she decided she was security person and all day, everyone in our house, we've got three older kids as well, had to call her security person. And she marched around and she wouldn't answer to anything else. And every time she went through a door or in the car or whatever else we had to say, excuse me, security person. So we all ended up getting very involved in this role play and it was repetitive, but also quite fun. And she thought she was in charge for the day, which she never is in our house because she's the littlest of a big family. And you could just see how much joy that brought her. So getting involved where you can, even if it feels a bit silly, it's actually got heaps of really important benefits for you and your kids. How can carers adapt the sorts of games and play children engage in when they have behavioural issues related to trauma or a neurodivergent or have sensory issues? Dr Anthea concludes the podcast with her advice on this topical issue. As we've talked about, play is in principle led by an individual so led by the child and it's supposed to be for recreation so it's supposed to be fun largely or it might just be entertaining or interesting or challenging and for different children particularly those who might be more neurodiverse or neurodivergent perhaps on the autism spectrum as you've mentioned as an example or perhaps they've got a background of trauma um, that means that the way they view and interact with the world is different from more neurotypical children then things that they choose to do and things that will bring them sort of joy and a feeling of fun might be different. So for children who, for example, have ASD or autism, often they'll find sensory activities the most rewarding or the sort of thing that they're going to seek most often. In the same way, some things may be overwhelming from a sensory point of view. So the best thing to do is allow that young person to kind of guide the agenda and show you what it is that they like. But typically, things that involve light, things that involve water, sometimes things that involve sound, things that involve touch, all examples of sensory types of play that can be really positive and provide great opportunities for learning for children who are neurodiverse and particularly those who might be on the autism spectrum. For young people or children who have a trauma background, it can be more complex. So again, allowing a child to lead the play is a really good first principle to have. If you stick with that, you're not going to go too wrong. They will usually pick something that they feel is safe for them or is a a preference. That might be very role play based. For children who are experienced or experiencing trauma, often their play is a place of escape. So they may want to role play, they might want to do things that are completely different from what their actual day-to-day life looks like. So it might be dressing up, it might be pretending that you're in another place or that you're another person. And again, that's got an actual purpose for that child in terms of them de-stressing, allowing them to actually feel more safe and empowered, giving them a space where they can actually interact with the world in a way that's different from what they've perhaps experienced or might have continued to experience. So allowing them to lead the way into those types of imaginative play for some children is again a really positive and actually very powerful healing process for them as well.
So the main takeaway messages on play are as follows. Play is vitally important to a child's learning and development. Play also inherently involves some risk and children learn and develop through managing that risk. Digital devices can be used for play as they can help children express their creativity and curiosity, but children can play with everyday household or found items or without anything at all, using their boundless imagination. Outdoor play is especially important as it gives children the opportunity to explore, solve problems, test their physical limits and build confidence. Letting children lead the play and set the agenda is key. This is especially important for neurodivergent children or those with behavioural issues arising from trauma in their background. In the next podcast in this series, we'll look at how to help carers prepare children for contact or access visits and how to debrief children after these visits. This podcast was made possible by generous support from the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing and the Carer Cafe.